Fremantle, in my mind, changed our sport from a bunch of guys who were talented and clever, but a bunch of larrikins. Mm. You know, there was a, quite a heavy drinking partying culture. Mm. And Fremantle changed that, where Sir Michael Fay um, and, and the team, the culture changed. Hey, you're here, you're being paid, you've got to be professional. Not only did we succeed in winning, but also for me, it was the start of my yachting professional career. I was lucky enough to come out of a bad campaign, go to the Admiral's Cup, and then go to um, Steinlager, and then I was away. And then I had my own campaigns after that, so it was a big step for me. We were coming out of the marina, out of Groves and Guttridge, and Jamarella, who we were having an absolute battle with, and between Brad and Laurie Smith, there was no love loss. And we're going past the stern of Jamarella, who was still in the marina, and Brad picked up a fender and threw it into the cockpit of Jamarella and said, hey, Smith, Smith, you're going to be needing this to sit on after we've finished with you today. And Hi everyone and welcome along to episode 21 of Broadreach Radio, the Yachting New Zealand podcast. My name is Michael Brown and today we have a really special show on the 1987 Admirals Cup. It was the first and only time New Zealand won the Admirals Cup, which was in those days among the most prestigious regattas going around. It was essentially the world championships of keelboat sailing. It was also something New Zealand had been chasing since the mid-1970s. And in 1987, it all came together through a combination of good boats, good designs, good team culture, and good sailors. The one ton of propaganda was the top boat at the regatta and had a top-class crew, including Peter Lester on helm and Ross Field on main sheet. Peter and Ross joined me for this interview, reminiscing about the brutal nature of the New Zealand trials and the fact the crews on the three New Zealand boats had to go from being enemies into friends as they worked towards a common goal what the wind meant to sailing in this country, and what it did for the careers of those involved. They also look back on the personal rivalries, like the one between Brad Butterworth and Laurie Smith, and also some controversies, particularly over allegations of cheating by the British team. And like all guests on the show, Peter and Ross also told the stories of their worst wipeouts ever. It was really fascinating to look back on this golden era of New Zealand sailing, so I hope you enjoy the podcast. Well, Peter Lister, Ross Field, welcome to the show. Thanks, mate. Yeah, thanks very much. Well, we're really looking forward to diving into uh, the 1987 um, uh, Admirals Cup, uh, which you two obviously played uh, major roles on. What, just to start with, though, what's your enduring memory of that event? Being, uh, being in the, you know, the home of yachting, really being in cows and of course the America's Cup came out of there in 1851 and the ROC, the Royal Ocean Racing Club, um, it's really the, the, the history of our sport is so entrenched in cows and the Admiral's Cup and sailing in the Solon mm. and, and um, you know I did six Admiral's Cups and certainly it's a really difficult place to get a, to get a handle on. And it took a long time for New Zealand to actually figure out how to sail on the south coast of England. 
and and what sort of boats you needed to be successful there. And that's what I can remember, really, especially of 87, that actually finally we got it right. Because we could have um, two two-tonners and one one-tonner, or as we had two one-tonners, didn't we, and one two-tonner. So we could have any, a variety of them, couldn't we? Yeah, there was a rating band that you had to fall in, fall but um, the formula that seemed to evolve, mm. sort of 85, 87, was you know two one-tonners and, and, a, and a slightly bigger boat. And New Zealand got that bit right. Yeah. Propaganda and Gold Corp, the two one-tonners, and, and Kiwi was, what, 45 feet. So where did you guys see uh, the Admiral's Cup in terms of importance in that era? You know, was it the preeminent keelboat uh, event at the time? Yeah, it was, wasn't it? It was big time, yeah. And after that Admiral's Cup, I went on the side with the Americans and to um, Admiral's Cup. And that was the... Uh, when did it fall over? 2003. 2003, was it? Yeah, it started to taper off, didn't it? It started to taper yeah. off. When they started to bring in one design, and they tried to bring in the Mum, th- mum 36s, didn't they? And um, the owners... I know. I remember my American owner, old Bob Taus, he, uh, he objected to sailing and one design boats he, he wanted to have you know um his own boat his own design and that sort of thing and but I, a lot I, a I lot in the sport has a shelf life i, I believe yeah. and and probably what happened i think with the admiral's cups happened with a lot of big boat yachting that you know gets really strong and it runs for a, a decade mm. or two and then the owners want something different and certainly it seemed to taper off in, in my view from when the the one-ton circuit in the Mediterranean and the 50-foot circuit, which was ran, running in the in the uh, late 80s, 90s. So the 50-footers were in the in the Med or in the Caribbean, um, and that I think that mm. affected the Admirals Cup. The the Admirals Cup in its heyday was the World Championship mm. of of big boat of that sort of racing. And certainly when we were there, Ross, wasn't it? It was yeah. regarded, hey, if you win this, you are the world champions. Yeah. And that's the way it was mm. treated. And is that why it attracted such a quality field of sailors as well? Oh, yeah, definitely. Internationally, you know, you, we, we had everyone there, didn't we? Germans and French and oh, it was, States. It, and certainly, everyone there. it was a, a legit. It was, it was up there. I mean, the one-ton cup was still plugging along pretty nicely through that period, hence why the one-tonners were so dominant in the, in the, in the strong teams. Uh, but the pinnacle event was to win the Admiral's Cup. Yeah. So afterwards, um, after New Zealand won, both the London Times and UK Daily Tally, they ran with headlines saying New Zealand was now uh, the world's leading yachting nation. Did you agree with that sort of assessment? Yeah, I think so. But it was more that, I think... It was more than just the Admiral's Cup. A lot had happened. New Zealand, um, obviously, had been to Fremantle and um, KZ7 and Chris Dixon and, and Sir Michael Fay. They put that together. Um, the Volvo Ocean Race or the Whitbread, the Whitbread Race, race started, was, yeah. was cooking along. Peter Blake and Ross and, and, and uh, Grant Dalton, they were doing wonderful things and and the one ton scene was pretty hot with kiwis not necessarily new zealand owned boats but a lot of kiwis involved and our olympic guys were doing pretty well so i think a generalized statement like that was 
probably reflected on mm. the sport as opposed to just the Admirals Cup team. Mm. What do you think was the key to New Zealand's win in 87? Well, I, th- I think it was the boats, of course, you know. I mean, propaganda was fast and gold court, but it was also the sailors. Uh, and I, I think we had a good team, didn't we? Everyone seemed to be... It was on that border of professionalism, wasn't it, you know, and that we everyone was there, you know, to win the yacht race and, you know, not to party. And um, I think that was a turning point. What do you reckon, Peter? We learnt the lessons because it, really that... Eight, there was 75 was the first time they went, and um, that was pre my time. From 80, what? It, so it's in the odd years, so 81, 82, eight, uh, 82, 85, and then 87 were the, the, the years that the squadron really pushed hard. When we first started, we were poor. Uh, we had an Swazzle Bubble was a great boat in, in, in 81, but the rest of the team really, in terms of hardware, were weak. So it probably took us three or maybe we're slow learners, three or four Admiral's Cups to figure out what hardware you needed to to succeed. Uh, Coupled with that, in the even years, we were doing Kenwood Cups or or Clipper Cups. So that was developing, again, a good pool of IOR-type yachts. And you think of Exidor, Pacific Sundance, Dollar Equity, um, Thunderbird, you know, a whole bunch of boats that were coming out of predominantly Bruce Farr, but also from Laurie Davidson, and and we were learning what was required. And I can remember after 85, so 85 we had um, Exodor, um, Epic Lass uh, were, were, were there, and although they were far boats, they were not quite right. They were probably, in my, in my mind, the boats were a wee bit short, and they had too much sail area. And and it's that raw was a trade-off. If you if you wanted a lot of sail area, you had a short boat. If you wanted a long, long boat that reached well in the fastnet race, you had to carry less sail area. So you had to figure out that balance. And I think it took to 1987 for us to figure out the the mm. right formula of boats to build. And and we were also fortunate the boat building industry was strong, and and we had. Two really smart designers in, in Bruce Farr and, 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 and Laurie Davidson. As I said, we had good sailors. And, you know. and good sailors. We, and they developed. Although I was late on the scene, really. You know, I'd, I'd done Enterprise with Digby and then, you know, slotted into an 87 with um, the Admiral's Cup and then on to Steinhager. But, you know, there were a lot of good sailors around. Well, the, the reason it was good sailors, well, one of the reasons was because of America's yeah, Cup. Yeah, America's Cup. Because... That entered. I didn't go to Fremantle, but it, Fremantle, in my mind, changed our sport from a bunch of guys who were talented and clever, but a bunch of larrikins. Mm. You know, there was a quite a heavy drinking and partying culture, mm. and Fremantle changed that. Where Sir Michael Fay um, and and the team, the culture changed. Hey, you're here. You're being paid. You've got to be professional. Yeah, I was in Fremantle, and, 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 and Laurent Hesquier like, uh, probably. Mm. Yeah, changed. So it was Laurent, a military operation. Yeah, it was a military operation, and if you screwed up, you were out of there. Mm. And that flowed over in my mind to the Admirals mm. Cup culture, and uh, even the ones that didn't go to Fremantle very quickly. You, you know, th- this is what was expected. And um, also, the teams were, you know, uh, from you know our disaster with um, poor old Digby. 
um, which was a disaster. But the team sort of just got better and better. And you know, we know you know the difference between being with Digby Taylor and Peter Blake was just astronomical. You know. But Blakey always used to say to me, you've got to go through a bad campaign to appreciate a good one. And I think a lot of Kiwis have gone through bad campaigns. Oh, and Admiral, I mean, Admiral's Cup's a classic example. Yeah, and I think everyone just, you know, just got better and better after that, yeah. It's probably just worthwhile um, for those listening out there, to, a little bit of a history lesson. So you, the 87 Admiral's Cup was the 30th anniversary, the... Uh, the the Cup was set up uh, by the US and Great Britain in 1957 for national teams of three boats. And it included um, some inshore races during Cows Week, the Channel Race, and then finished with the 605-mile Fastnet mm. Race. And in its heyday, it attracted uh, teams from up to 19 countries at, at each, each edition. And as you mentioned, New Zealand entered in the 1970s. Um, when was the first one? Sorry, 75. Sorry. 75. 75 was the first one. Yeah. Barnacle Bill, Gerontius, and was it Inca? Might have been Inca, I, I think. When was your first, Peter? Because you've been 1977, okay, dinghy yeah, world my, champion. Mine first was, my first Admiral's Cup was 81, and I sailed on um, with Stu Brecknell on Wee Willy Winky, which was a Ron Holland boat, and there was Swizzle Bubble, um, Ian Gibbs, and um, she was a really good boat. They they got that one. That right. was out of Wellington, eh? Uh, no, Swizzle Bubble was out of Auckland. Oh yeah. Um, and so that was my first one. But but again, we were spasmodic. Swizzle Bubble was great. The the other boats weren't weren't so great. Mm. Um, and so this was your first one, though, Ross. How first, did your um, association with it come about? Um, I really after Enterprise, yeah, you know, I spent a very short time at um, Fremantle at the America's Cup, and then came back here and started. Well, I didn't have any work, so I started doing a bit of sail making, and that's where I hooked up with um, and with um, Butterworth and that sort of thing. And so it just I came on with Butterworth and Shoebridge onto Propaganda, and then Blakey gave me a job with Steinlager, so that's where it all sort of started. So countries traditionally held trials to find the three boats to um, compete. So how were the three team, New Zealand teams found? And you know how what were the what was the trial sort of selection criteria? How did it come about? Well, you went with us, were you in the trial? No, no, no. I mean, for we'll come back to how I ended up on yeah. propaganda because no, I was on fair share. Yeah. But yeah, they're New, identical though, weren't they? Yes, we can talk about that in a minute. But yes, New Zealand held trials to go to the Kenwood Cup and the and the Admirals Cup, and and that was brutal. It was full on out in mm. the Haraki Gulf, and they do you know short races, long races, and um, there was certainly no love lost uh, in terms of the trials. And in fact, I know Don Brock made the point that the trials were actually quite brutal and, and quite aggressive that um, to, to bring together as a team those elements, you know, to say, well, the trials are over now, now you're a team, you've actually got to work together. It took, a, again, multiple campaigns to sort of to get that to gel. Um, it, it was problematic in some of the earlier years of Admiral's Cup and Kenwood Cup. So how many boats would typically enter the trials? How many were there? I, I think there were only four. Was there four or five? Barnstorm was in there as well, I think. Oh, I think yeah, there yeah. were f four or five. Uh, for the 87, there was the, the three boats that went. Then there was Fair Share, Dal Hogg's boat, 
out of Wellington, which was a sister ship to Propaganda, and Barnstorm, and I can't remember. What was Barnstorm? She was a masthead. Was it a Peterson boat? Oh, yeah. I can remember. Yeah, mm. I, can, I only vaguely remember. Sitting. I remember the the trials were you know. Oh, it was full, full on. on. It was it was. Uh, there wasn't any love lost. And, there, <laughs> and, and uh, yeah. So what happened with me though? I was steering uh, fair share uh, during the trials, and we had some great battles with propaganda. And then when propaganda got selected, fair share was out, and and then. Um, I guess probably Ross could probably answer. I think you guys had a bit of a debrief and decided, hey, maybe you needed well, uh, what to happened? have a bit of an afterguard change, and yeah. I got invited on board. Yeah, and there was a big change, and the um, in fact, I don't know. They're all there. I, th I think we just changed the helmsman, didn't we? Changed the helmsman, and we needed. I don't know why we picked Lester. To be quite honest, with you. <laughs> <laughs> I was against it, but he no, ended up. No, why actually? <laughs> No, but we needed to change, and you know the boat was quick, and you know we knew it was quick, but um, a couple of helmsmen who, who we had just weren't up to the, up to the mark. Yeah. But interestingly, propaganda was seen as a bit of a long shot going into the trials, and Brad Butterworth, who was um, involved in the project team, and I think he was tactician on board, said it was, and I quote, a horror show. So what was what was going on? Well, it was only a horror show. No, I disagree with Brad, you know. But um, it, we just needed a change, and um, and Bevan uh, made the change when it was necessary. And that's the only one we you were the only one we changed, mm. wasn't it? Yeah, I think I was the only ringing. Yeah, the only person who we brought on, and um, you know, the people who were helming before will remain nameless, but. Um, uh, they just weren't up to the mark, really. What was the story then about the, the keel? And yeah, I don't know. I don't know. You mentioned that, I Actually, from my memory, there were... The, so, we, what was... We optimised it. Yeah. The, the, the IOR, IOR rule at that time really favoured, speed-wise, for the boats to be stable. But if you wanted a lower rating it favoured being unstable for the given sail area. So the trick was to, to get a really favourable writing moment reading when you measured the boat. And that effectively that what meant how much lead was in the keel. More lead, you're more stable, you paid a price. And so people were really conscious and, and, and doing multiple um, mm. in-water testing of, of these ratings. And... Bevan, I think, Bevan Woolley and Mike Spanning did a damn good job with propaganda we, we of optimising yeah. the rating by getting as much lead in the keel as they could to make it, give it stability without giving away sail area. And it's uh, one of the things that Bevan, we used to uh, rate the boat, I think the last couple of ratings, you could, because they didn't um, test the... Uh, Specific gravity uh, of the water. Of the water. So you'd wait for a great big storm to come through, and when there's a lot of fresh water in the marina, you'd measure it. So the boat would sink lower in the water, which would mean that it's... Oh, I can't remember what it was. It was a complicated rule. It, it was a calculation. So the specific gravity of yeah. the water was taken, mm. and if it was low in salt, you were, you were given a little bonus. Mm. But, but the end goal was just quite simply to get, to get the boat as stiff writing mm. moment as you could with the lowest rating number 
um, that you could race with because a high number you you were paying valuable seconds mm. per mile. You mentioned um, that New Zealand had evolved the approach to be a bit more collaborative uh, and the teams working together rather than this brutal sort of mm. showdown in the trials. And Don Brook, who was the team manager, said um, in a quote, we believe we won the cup 24 months ago. We sat down and got contributions from everyone who had been involved in the Champagne Mum Admirals Cup and had monthly meetings at the squadron. A big job was to change the trialists from enemies into friends. Was that ever difficult to implement? Um, probably not. I mean, you've got to go back and think what happened in 85, which was probably a problematic team, um, and there was quite a lot of in-house in duelling, and so that's your 24 months before, and, and the boats weren't right. And, and I, th I can remember the owners getting together saying, right, let, let's build boats that we think could get the job done, and that's how propaganda and fair share evolved with, with Bruce Farr. And by the way, Bruce didn't necessarily like the concept of a long boat with less sail area. Your Jamarella, the, the English boat that we went, was Bruce Farr's boat. Propaganda was actually a boat evolved from a New Zealand concept mm. with Bevan and Del Hogg, and I think Brad had a bit of input, and I did. So we wanted these long, a long boat that would reach, mm. essentially, and then you'd hope like hell you could survive in the light air races, and, and luckily we did. Um, so that collaborative approach started at the design phase, and Kiwi was that Peter Walker put together was sort of along that same concept as well, as well. Not, not probably as aggressive as what where propaganda was. So I think as soon as there was collaboration in terms of the design concept, 24 months out or 20 months out, it sort of flowed on and uh, that was a good thing. Mm. Were you surprised that the approach hadn't been used before? Because, it, you know, I guess you look back and... You see what's done today, and there's a lot of collaboration in an Olympic campaign, for instance. It seems to make sense. I just think it's development, you know, yeah. as the sport got more and more professional and people became more professional approach to things. I think that just naturally happened, you know. And yeah, and, the, and I think New Zealand sailors matured. Mm. I mean, in 1977, we had the One Ton Cup here, and it was so we're talking the number. Uh, sorry, no, uh, Mr. Jumper, Smackwater Jack, um, um, Lion New Zealand, Lion Red, Stu Bretnell's boat. And I mean, the trials in the One Ton Cup, which New Zealand dominated, was brutal. No love lost. And, and that was sort of the Kiwi culture at that time. And it took really to another 10 years. Mm. And I, I still think it was the likes of the, the Whitbread race and especially Fremantle, the America's Cup sort of knocked, knocked that out in New Zealand, big boat yachting. Mm. So the, the team also brought Rod Davis in as coach. You know, what sort of influence did he have? He was more, wasn't he more Kiwi with Kiwi? Yeah, I mean, Rod, he... had, Rod had come obviously out of Fremantle um, and um, he, he did more, more than propaganda, probably did quite a lot with the bigger boat with Peter Walker and, that, and, and Tom Dodson. Um, to because they didn't have anyone to play with. The one tunners are smacking themselves around in the mm. Hareki Golf. Mm. Kiwis out there by themselves, mm. trying to knowing that when they get to England, they're going to come up against you know the the 
the Poms and the, mm. the Danish and the, the German 44-footers, and you, they needed to be competitive. And I think he did a, a Rod did good work with them. Mm. You also used some video analysis. You know, how common was that at the time? Did we? <laughs> there was a bit of video. So, yeah, that was sort of driven again out of America's Cup. They'd, they'd been doing that in Fremantle. John Clinton probably bought a bit of his technology there with sale analysis uh, and video analysis. And, and Rod, again, that... That's we used to have a lot of debriefs, eh? A lot. A lot of debriefs. You know, before we went out, and I always remember we used to have a lot of debriefs after about this and that, and everyone, you know, could put their tuppence worth in, you know, and so we think, yeah, yeah. I remember that distinctly, eh? Mm. Which, did you ever have before debriefs? Or? No, I think it had casual conversations, but... But again, that was New Zealand yachting maturing, yeah. wasn't it? Mm. You know, how mm. to debrief, how to analyse, how mm. to how to be more critical with sales selection and mass setups and, and whatnot. I also read somewhere that you did 20 full days of sailing on the Waitamata and then another 12 on the water on the Solent in England and the leading up to the Admiral's Cup. You know, how significant was all of that time training? Well, the trials took a long time, didn't they? Uh, trials would be, you know, they took a long time, and then we were in England. We were in England two weeks beforehand, were we? Hmm, I think, I think that I'm sure those numbers are about right, you know. Um, yeah. So it doesn't seem a lot compared with what people put in now. Yeah. Um, but, but did it but, seem like a lot at the time? Uh, I can't remember it being a lot at the time. I remember no. we did quite a big block before because I had come over from Fair Share, and I do remember the first days that I sailed with with Ross and the team. Um, out here before the boat was shipped, and that that was that was for me being new on the boat. That was pretty valuable because again, different people, different, mm. different and they sailed the boat differently. The setup was different. So obviously, you came in as helmsman, and that that was a change. Was there much tinkering on other boats that, of, of the New Zealand team? Tinkering with sails, with boat setup. I don't setup. think so. I think sails wise. I, I, it was interesting. I, I, we did with, with sales. There was a lot of work went on with sales. Again, John Clinton was there from Norths, and um, and he's got a real keen eye, and he's a sale designer. And and he was both here in Auckland and when we went to Cowes, wasn't mm. he? And John, I, I can remember that Bevan decided, in his wisdom, and I think it was a good call, to actually buy a jib or more than one jib from Diamond Sales, who turned out to be... And Winwood Sales. And Winwood Sales. Yeah, so yeah, they, who they, I was working with. That's right. They, they decided, and it was, I think, a really good call to actually check in with some other mm. designers. Yeah, And, was, and I yeah. can remember that influenced our race sales for the regatta in terms of, um, you know, different aspects of, of jibs and mm. different shapes and... And, and by the time we got to the Admiral's Cup, we'd, there had been quite a lot of design work done mm. on sales, and it was really beneficial um, to, to the performance. It was very beneficial because uh, the Solent is a lot is a lot different, even in Christchurch. We do, do we race in Christchurch? Yeah, Bay, we, do. we Flat water, you know, flat, flat water, water, a lot of current, mm. and so you were, you were a lot in pinching yeah. mode. You need to go high mode a lot. Mm. Uh, and and the Kiwi way was really sometimes to punch a bit harder, you know, just sail a degree, mm. a direct degree. But down we did quite a few um, races in the Solent itself, yeah. didn't we? Yeah, Pre lead in. Yeah.
Did you ever tend to hide things or a bit of sandbagging, you know, try to put other teams off? Was there any of that no. sort of skullduggery beforehand? No, there was always the rating debacle going on, questions. and um, They all questioned you. And that, yeah. that was pretty pretty full on through that period. But in terms of in terms of the setup, no. Because you had such a short time from when you arrived mm. there and you got your boat and you got set up and you got settled in, you didn't have a lot of time to, to muck around before the start of the Admiral's Cup. We did uh, quite a few races, a lot of races before the Admiral's Cup started. You know, there was practice races set Yeah, up, there, uh, no, there were. There, there cows were. set them up, yeah. So what was, I guess, the general feeling like within the wider New Zealand team going into the regatta? Oh, good. I think we were very confident. You know, we, we knew were, we were quick. We were quick. Uh, propaganda was fast. I mean, we knew really from day one, if, yeah. as soon as we went out, if we could check in with, with Jamarella and Juno and probably the Sudati from Germany and maybe Thomas I. Punt, and, and foot it with them. And there especially were the Danish when, uh, guys. Especially eh? when Thomas was loading water oh, from yeah. one side to the other. And, and, <laughs> and so that was probably pretty early on that we knew, especially for us, yeah. against... Against Laurie Smith, eh? Against Juno. Smith. Yeah. Uh, no, no, Jamarella. Jamarella, that's right. That we were quick. We, we knew we were close yeah. to being on the game. And, um, yeah, and yeah. it ended up quite a... Yeah. Quite an interesting sort of a regard. Yeah, the, the yeah. personalities, Laurie Smith and yeah. and Brad Butterworth, were quite interesting, quite entertaining actually to sit back and watch. Yeah. So there were fourteen teams lining up in '87. So you mentioned the Germans and the Brits and maybe the Danes. You know, are they the main threats? Were there any others that you sort of saw as any dark horses in there? Probably the Irish were a bit of a dark horse, but they were so inconsistent. Maybe they had too many Guinnesses, but. Uh, they had quite it was the Germans, really. Ilbrook, isn't it? Old well, Willie Germany Ilbrook. had won the yeah. previous two Admirals Cups. Mm. So Would Willie Ilbrook spoke Pinta. And, um, he used to fund the teams, yeah, didn't he, really? Sudati mm. and, mm. and the container guy, um, Udo Schutz. They, they, were the, they were the powerhouse mm. Germans. Mm. But they sort of came up a little bit short, didn't they? They, yeah. did, they weren't quite there. Mm. And, then, and as the regatta went along, the, the Danish team looked quite, mm. I can remember, being quite strong. If we, if we have a, if you have a fast boat, you know you, you can get yourself out of you know, uh, you know difficult situations. But if you're not fast, you know it's hard work. And um, so you know, with Billy calling the t- tactics and um, Pete steering, you know we were we got ourselves out. We were blisteringly quick, yeah. really, and and we were around the top mark with the two tonners. I can remember one race on Christchurch Bay. We we actually led round the top mark of a race. Yeah. And I mean, we're in a one-tonner, and there's 45 footers behind us. Now they ran us down, downwind, but that, that was game, set, and match. Yeah. And all you had to do was keep clean, you know. So the first race was an inshore race. Uh, if you remember rightly, there was a two and a half hour delay with wind, waiting for the wind to arrive. The Danes, who interestingly had been forced into a hasty repair job the, the night before after breaking their mast in their last training run, they actually won. Uh, the the race that day and a lot of the favoured boats struggled and um, in fact yachts from 11 nations filled the top 12 places so you know what after that first day were you still reasonably comfortable with where things were at? Um, I remember the first race it was it was light and and you know I talked earlier about how we we had optimised the boat that 
for a one ton. It was a, a big boat. It was long with is only enough sail area, you know, to get the job done. So that meant downrange. That was the boat's weakness for for propaganda. And and Goldcourt was quite similar in terms of sail to hull ratio, um, sail area to the length of the boat. And and Kiwi, I'm not sure. I think they were a wee bit more moderate. So How did we go in that race? Oh, we were deep. Yeah. Deepish. I think we survived, but n nothing. But luckily for us, so the others, the, 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 the Brits, you know, Juno and Jamarella, were also quite deep. Because it's no secret, if, you, if you're doing the Admiral's Cup and you're going to have a channel race and a fast net race, you better have a boat that can reach. Otherwise, you're going to... You know, and there's more points. Because it's double points. So... Um, yeah, luckily that first race, although it wasn't great for New Zealand, it was it wasn't a um, you know the, the regatta was not going to be decided on the no. first race. It was going to be just decided at the end of the fast net race. So with the handicapping in place, was it ever difficult to kind of judge how well you're going as against your opposition and and bearing in mind what what handicap rating they would have? Well, you know what that you know what you're up against, you know, and if you can. You know, if you're sort of dropping back in the pack a bit, you know, you you got a problem. It doesn't, you know, it's the same with all yachting, but, you know, we had a pretty good idea of how we were going. Bevan we? was bloody good at that. Yeah. Bevan was very clever. He he's a, he was a navigator and a smart guy, yeah. being a dentist and good with numbers, good at drugs. So. <laughs> and so Bevan would have those time correction factors. Yeah, um, he, he had it all sorted. And, and at each mark, he, he'd tell us where, where we were and whether we needed to take a bit more risk or not. And so all the navigators were pretty well yeah. on the TCFs um, and they, they did it manually, eh? They they just had a, you know, like an abacus remember, and spit, we, spit out the numbers. He took us out in the channel race to, was it EC2 or something, wasn't it? And it was fog, you know, and he says, just over there. And I remember Billy saying to um, Bevan, are you sure, Bevan? Bevan said, it's over there. And it was there, spot on, you know, he was spot on, eh? Yeah, he, was a, he was an excellent navigator. Yeah, incredible. And that plays a big role because yeah. you, you weren't you didn't have the 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 aids that you have today no, you, didn't have all the... you actually had to do it off charts yeah. you had brad, brad butterworth as tactician yeah. or was he as some you know top of his game that that you never know if bill was at the top of his game or not <laughs> he was bloody good he is he's a, a him, unbelievable him and i got on and i mean i was enemy up to that but we we got on from day yeah, one as yeah. a group i always got on with bill and, but and bill is uh Super, super talented. Though. Yeah, and really calm and calm, and never ever good options. Good options. I'll tell you a little story about Pete. We we were um, we were coming up. I don't know. It wasn't in the Admiral's Cup. I think it was in the trial race. And anyway, um, Pete was getting a little bit excited, and um, he took out when we were running downhill. Remember, you took out the aerials on the back of which boat was it? <laughs> and uh, Pete was abusing this guy, and you're in the wrong. And, and after you calmed down and you were saying to Bill, Bill, that guy's around. And Bill just goes, Pete, you're in the wrong. <laughs> <laughs> it was the end of the conversation. <laughs> he never got excited no. about anything, did he? But we, he was, he, yeah. And you, you needed in that place, because it's tricky, someone yeah. who saw the bigger picture. Yeah. Because you've got a lot going on, a lot of boats, a lot of congestion, a lot of different size boats. And uh, a hell of a lot of current. So you needed someone like calm, you know, calm and just always looking at the bigger picture. Sometimes when they went to sleep, yeah, but he was <laughs> yeah good. 
So yeah. did you always do what you were told as helm? Yeah, uh, yeah pretty well. Because the helming role at that time, and, and probably hasn't changed much, is just make sure you're quick. My role, eh, just make sure, you know, you're working with the trimmers, working mm-hmm. with Ross trimming the main and the... The guys, you know, the Bill likes of Kevin Bill would say, you know, let's you just go, we've got to go a little bit faster. Yeah, if you want a foot or you want to go high. You want or, to go high or that, you know, you had to say, this is what we've got to do, you know. And then you change the mode and Change the go. mode and off you go, yeah. So New Zealand was one point behind the Brits after the second inshore race and then you guys took the lead after the third race. So did the strategy change at all as the regatta wore on? No, not really. I don't think so. The only strategy change I can remember is towards the end of the you knew who you, you, yeah. you there weren't four players in the game we had four, yeah. you knew, you had it, was the, it was the palms mm. and the by the time we got to the fast net race it was it was us in gbr and and i can remember you know the the briefing meeting essentially we were designated a boat that we we didn't have to beat them but we had to finish be close and we were given jamarella mm. and uh, hence because when you do the fast net race, and, and it's something we'd learned, is as you go down the south coast of England, depending on the wind conditions and how quick you're going, you've got to make the tidal gates. And, Ross, you'd, is there five of them or four of them? I can't even yeah. remember. But yeah, Portland, I've done a lot. Portland Bill was the first one. Mm. And yet it determined where, where you, the timing, whether you went into Portland or you went out in the English Channel. Yeah. And those decisions... So that's what your game plan was. But in that situation with us wanting to stay with Jamarella, if they went out and the, the timing was saying you're going, you're going to go in, you, you'd have, I, I think we went out, we followed them, or, or oh, went I, with them. It, 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 they they start the um, fastnet race so that you've got outgoing tide and you can get to Portland Bill, unless it's very light airs. You know? And so you, you only got... Yeah, two choices really you go inside or outside I can't remember if we went inside or outside yeah, I can't remember. we went wherever they went, <laughs> we went, they went. but that, that they would go the, the quickest way as well you know so it's pretty obvious because around Portland Bill she's doing six knots or something so did that mean that Gold Corp also needed to match up with its Brit opponent and Kiwi had to match yeah. up with it its Brit opponent and it was basically match racing each yeah. boat yeah and, and we had we over, had over 100 points, I think, going into 109. that. 109. 109. So it meant we didn't have to beat them. We just had to not lose track. And um, from memory, Gold Corp had Juno, which was a, the one-tonner, and um, Kiwi would have had Indulgence, the the bigger boat for the GBR team. And, um, and that strategy worked out. How did we finish up? Okay. We, we ended up finishing with... Jamarella in sight, so we we were in sight the whole race with them. I think I think Gold Corp lost sight a little bit of Juno because Juno finished second, I think, in the fast net. But uh, Kiwi beat Indulgence, oh. and that was it. It was it was oh. enough. So was there much checking in with the other boats just to see how they were going against their respective? No, you're not allowed to. Not allowed to. So you, yeah. you were you'd listen for the scared, remember? Remember yeah, we'd sit yeah, down there with Bevan, the skids, and yeah. the scared would come in, and we'd say, oh, yeah. you know, because you, you, you know that was the only time you knew when people gave their um, position um, mm. at, at six in the morning, at six at night. So when you heard those, and it was Busy. mostly positive, you know, what did that do for a crew? Well, you know that you can, for you know, you, you sort, of, you know, you, you know, you're all buoyed up, but you know that you can fall off. As quick as 
you can. So you've got to really keep concentrating and really keep sailing. So you can't get overconfident, can you? Well, especially there because it's, oh, it's you can a, get you can get absolutely punished in yeah, the it's a nightmare know, in the Irish Sea. It's quite tricky. Mm. And was was Bevan doing all the points calculations for you? As oh, for sure. Came yeah, in? yeah. He was great. Mm. He Bevan was, is very good. Was, very, yeah. very clever. So sailing a one-ton yacht across the the Celtic Sea to the Fastnet Rock uh, can't be the most pleasant experience all of the time. And Russell Coote, who didn't do this Admiral's Cup, but did another one. So, um, remembers being horribly sick at the time <laughs> that he did the fast net race, saying it was the most unpleasant experience he'd ever had. What was it like in '87? Well, I think it was all right, actually. Was it all right? No, '87 was '85 was a nightmare. We're on the wind till. Um... Yeah. No, '87 was quite nice conditions, mm. um, but mm. it can be awful. Um, I've done it about eight or nine times now. And had a bit of a thrashing. <laughs> <laughs> but it's not, in a 40-footer, it's... Yeah, it's hard. It's, it's quite... Because you, if you're on the wind, you're on the rail. It's, mm. it's the way it is. We're on the wind to... Um, the rock, weren't we? I think we, we were on the wind to uh, Land's End, and then I think we were just very tight, oh, one and in or something, to Fastnet Rock. Okay. And then we ran home, yeah. Can't imagine you on the rail, Peter. Oh, man. You didn't have any option. <laughs> you can't afford to have people downstairs, you know. It's so even when you weren't steering, you were on the rail? Sleep, yeah. A small boat. Hmm. It's a bit different. But even in big boats now. And I did the fastnet race. I left them all on the rail, 25 of them. <laughs> <laughs> it's ballast. It's power. Yeah. It's, uh... When did you know that you had the Admiral's Cup in the bag? Because uh, it's such a difficult place. Yeah, it was... Till you're, till you're in Plymouth. Mm. And the whole team was yeah. in Plymouth. Yeah. Well, the two one-tonners came in. Us, propaganda and Goldcorp would have finished quite close, so mm. um, wouldn't have been until then. And what was that feeling like? Because, you know, it would have been a long campaign, 24 months, as, as Don Brooke was saying. Mm. Ah, God, yeah. Very happy, aren't you? <laughs> we had a couple of beers. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I, well, and it, it, for for people like me, it was it had been not just that mm. campaign. We'd been doing it since eighty one and getting absolutely pantsed by mm. the Germans and the the Brits and the French and the the USA teams. We we hadn't had a good track record there, so in some ways it was a huge relief that finally we'd um, we'd won the mm. damn thing, you know. So you mentioned that there might have been a little bit of a, a party, but what about during the week itself, you know, what was race week like off the water? Ah, oh, we just, you had a deep, you know, deep, fix the boat up, all that do. We had someone looking after the boat, didn't we? Hmm. But then we, you, you just go back and um, have a debrief, have dinner and go to bed, you know, because, you know, it's a long day. And we lived in a crew house. We had a it was a crew house. It was great. Yeah, we had we, a we had a crew house and we had cooks and, and everything. So it was yeah, you really weren't really that. out. Probably had a beer sponsor. I don't know. Was it Kiwi Lager? Or I don't know. Had what a we couple had. of beers. Yeah, he only had a couple of beers. No, it was it was pretty quiet. Um, by then, the the edges had been knocked off. <laughs> the the party culture for yeah, sure. Yeah, it had gone. It had finished. Was there much media interest at all in, during the week? 
Yeah, and, well, as you start doing well, there else. Mm. I can remember Jane Dent was there. Do you remember oh, Jane Dent yeah, from yeah, TVNZ? Yeah, and yeah, maybe she was a correspondent in um, in London at the time with TVNZ. Yeah, I that, yeah. And Jane came down, and she 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 was great. Mm. She she really got into it. And, mm. and after that, of course, she was one of the front people again in, in San Diego with America's mm. Cup. Jane mm. was, um, but Jane was there from TVNZ. So. And then on the written side, I can't remember. Alan Sefton would have been there doing. Was Montgomery there? No. PJ there? I can't remember. Can't remember. Mm. Was there ever mind games? You know, try to. There's always that sort of scuttlebutt and and, uh, trash talking that you get in America's Cup these days. What about. Back then. I think it, there were a lot of um, teams had a, were having a go at us for our rating, wasn't there? You know, and because we were a bullet, you know, and because um, the boat was so stiff up when yeah. there were questions, you know, there was a lot going on about whether the rating was correct, and it, and it was, it was correct. Mm. But subsequent to that, you hear there was water ballasting accusations, and of course, Tom after the Admiral's Cup, Thomas I punt the German boat. Yeah, he got he he got. You know, uh, sanction for water ballast. Oh, I remember uh, them yeah. passing us, and we, yeah. just, we just couldn't believe it because no mean, one passed us. And this no thing one passed us. And he, was in the channel race, wasn't he? He, he went. He went through to Lourdes. Yeah, it was in he? the channel race. We're in the channel race, hard on the hard on the yeah. wind, and we were all on the rail. And um, he just bloody dropped his bow down, went through our lee, and out the other side. We, we just lucky. couldn't believe it. We pulled him back down wind, but we went. Uh, yeah. So that yeah, there was a bit, but I think the funniest thing I can remember was. It would have been before run of the race. We were coming out of the marina, out of Groves and Guttridge, and, and Jamarella, who we were having an absolute battle with, and between Brad and Laurie Smith, there was no love loss. Again, it goes right back to Fremantle, because White Crusader, the, yeah. the GB, you know, the commie setup. Smith was with them, and Brad was on KZ7, so there was a bit of baggage from Fremantle. And we're going past the stern of Jamarella, who was still in the marina, and Brad picked up a fender, and threw it into the cockpit of Jamarella and said, hey, Smith, Smith, you're going to be needing this to sit on after we've finished with you today. And I can remember going, oh, I don't think you should have said that, you know. Yeah, so there was a bit going on. There he was... didn't like Kiwis, old Laurie, but no. I did the Admiral's Cup with them, with the Americans. And um, I got on with them very well. I lived in Lymington for a while, and Smith was in Lymington. Good yachty. Oh, yeah, very clever. Good yachty in that, you know. So there was a wee bit. Yeah. Well, it's interesting you talk about the water ballast issue because afterwards there was quite a bit of controversy. Obviously, the German boat you were talking about, which um, got disqualified, but there were also uh, allegations against the British team uh, for using water ballast uh, during the Channel and Fastnet races. Now, rules allowed teams to carry, I believe, one litre of water per sailor per day for the long races. Um, but claims were made that excessive amounts of water were being carried, were seen being carried on board the British one-tonners, Jamarella and Juno. Um, the British coach even admitted to a reporter that they took on large amounts of water the night before each race of the Admiral's Cup and would dump it the next morning if it was light, saying he was unaware it was illegal. <laughs> what did you sort of make of all of that? I can vaguely remember it, but... We kept away from that stuff. Uh, we, we, the only, uh, <laughs> but I can remember that. Uh, I remember Jamarella was up our bum in the channel in the channel race. You know, remember running in, and we were, you know, I think either Bill had their pencil out, you know, measuring how far they were behind, and and then all of a sudden, 
man alive. They were into us, eh? They, they just were up and surfing and right up our bum, eh? And there was always the allegation that they were tossing a little bit of stuff over the side. But, you know, you don't know, do you? They have to yeah. live with it. Well, it's reported that uh, both New Zealand and Australia asked the Royal Ocean Racing Club to conduct an inquiry into the allegations. Do you know if that ever there was went a lot, anywhere? No, I can't. I can remember stuff, but there was a lot going on at that time with um, with with water, water ballasting, and the German... And dumping lead. And, and, and dumping lead, dumping water. And, and so I think it was a bigger... A bigger picture as a the than than specifically just individual boats yeah. in the Admirals Cup, but it applied to the Ton Cups and to the the Admirals Cup because mm. that was the World Champs and um, yeah there was there was certainly a lot going on mm. at that time and a, a, a lot of gossip around the dock. I guess when you win the Admirals Cup, there's not really much to be gained by pursuing legal sort of ramifications anyway. The committees, they they, uh, they did get into it because they conducted that inquiry into old Thomas I. Punk. He, mm. you know, they slaughtered him, didn't they? Yeah, I think it ended up at World... So well, what it, it was the IYRU then, yeah. wasn't it? It ended up... Uh, I can't recall all that stuff. Yeah. I, I didn't tend to... Yeah, it I didn't. wasn't really my pitch, to no. be honest. So you talked about, you know, the significance of winning and the relief of winning... Do you remember how the news was greeted back home? I think it was huge back here. Mm, we didn't realise, did we? No, you never do realise, do no. you? When you're, you know, you're in a foreign country, you know, doing quite well, you never realise, you know, the amount of interest that there is in your home country. But I think it was um, very well received back here, and it was very good for yachting. What did it do for some of the sailors in that New Zealand team? Because a lot of them went on to become household names. I've just got a bit of a list here. There was, um, we've already mentioned, Brad Butterworth, U2, Tony Ray, Kevin Shoebridge, Jeremy Scantlebury, Mike Spanick, Bevan Woolley, Owen Rutter, Tom Dodson, Rick Dodson. You know, what did this win do for those sailors, but mm. New Zealand sailing generally? Well, I think it, it was New Zealand sailing coming of age, and, and it was one of... The fuses to the, you know, to the door. Really, mm. you had a, mm. you know, the, the Whitbread race, Steinlager, Peter Blake, Ross Field, Grant Dalton doing their thing. America's Cup, we've got a taste for that, and then the Admirals Cup, and of course uh, Kenwood Cups were also another one. And mm. all of a sudden, we went from being making excuses why we couldn't win in, internationally to getting the job mm. done, and it opened the profession. It, we went through that period of 87, 88, where New Zealand sailing went from being really good amateurs to professionals. Yeah. And, it, and the mm. names that you've mentioned are some of our best. Mm. And, and th that was a, a pretty special time, wasn't it? Mm. To see the, mm. the sport go from amateur to professional, not unlike uh, rugby, you know, it went through the amateur mm. years and then it mm. changed. And it was very good for me because I... You know, did the Big B and then I did the Admirals Cup and then straight away, you know, Blakey signed me up on a good contract and I was away. And then after Steinlager, I had all my own campaign. So it was a really big stepping stone for me. Yeah, and for me, I, I got invited the next year to 
to work for Sir Michael Fay and I was, I was on the big boat, you mm. know, for 88 big boat mm. challenges mm. as a tactician. So it was massive for mm. all of us mm. that, it, that it opened up opportunities to, instead of doing it from, you know, weeknights and weekends, you were full-time yeah. pro yachting, so mm. it was fantastic. Mm. Did it play a role in the 95 America's Cup one oh, as well? Sure. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So New Zealand was third at the 89 Admirals Cup. Were either of you involved? Yeah, I was. I, um, I skippered a boat called Libra. So I'd, I'd done 88 Big Boat Challenge um, on KZ1. And so I was working for Sir Michael Fay, and then the Admirals come, come around in 89, and um, the decision was m- made that Sir Michael and David Richwhite would build a boat for the Admirals Cup. Um, to partner Propaganda and Fair Share, so they were getting a bit long in the tooth by then. But anyway, Libra was built um, by Martin Marine. And and the, the concept of the boat, although it was a 44-footer, was very much in the Propaganda philosophy, long, skinny boat, enough sail area to get the job done. And uh, I think we ended up third overall, and Rod Davis was tactician on there. And uh, we, had, we had a great group of guys, and we got third individual vote, but the, the, by then, propaganda and fair share, they, they were beyond their use-by date, really. Um, only one new boat was built, and I think the team ended up third overall. Who, who else was in? Propaganda and fair share? Yeah, propaganda oh, and yeah. fair share. No, but, I went on with Steinlager. I didn't do any more. But by then, um, and by then, the, it, probably the golden years mm. of Admirals was starting to taper off. Um, I, I think by 80, 89 and by 91 it was really teams were the, the, the numbers were down Did you do 91 as well? Uh, no I didn't do 91 I did 93 with the Germans actually Yeah I did 93 with the Americans What was it like to then jump country and race for a different team? Well, it's your job that, That's the change We were, we yeah. were now this this is you were you were marketing your um, expertise and uh, I ended up going with Jimmy along with a whole bunch of other yachties uh, Don Cow. But also you learn a lot that way I yeah. think sailing with you know I say I have you know from my boats that I, I've had I've had a lot of French people on board you know and you you learn a lot more you know instead of just staying in your own country you learn well I did anyway you know you just learn heaps more. Do you think there's ever a place for something like the Admiral's Cup in today's sailing landscape? Well, they tried to with the Commodore's, is it Commodore's Cup? It, it's not, I don't know whether it's been good or not. I think the pro game has changed. It's more day racing now. Yeah. You look at the 50-foot circuit, which is the... That's the, right, they bought in they this thing. They, they own it, the owner's... Don't want to go to sea yeah. for well, two was, or three nights. They they want to. Yeah, go they didn't want the. They cut out the fastnet race yeah. in the Admirals Cup, didn't they? That killed it. That killed it. Yeah, especially when I know with Bob Taus, when with the Americans, he, he he even though he was downstairs the whole time <laughs> in his bunk, but he he enjoyed it. Yeah. He enjoyed the um, Admirals Cup, and as I said, he didn't want to sail in a one design boat. He he wanted his own boat, you know, and he had the money to do it, and he wanted to design and build and put the crew together and enjoy the thing but he couldn't do it so he pulled the pin Could you see a a teams racing kind of concept ever coming to fruition again? Yeah not driven by, well it's it's so in my opinion now so uh, in that size of 
boat, owner-driven. You look at the RC44 circuit, you look mm. at the... The, um, the fast 40s are all Yeah, the fast drivers. 40s, the 50-footers in the mid. It's, it's, the, it's the owners, and they are like a, a club. And they decide. They decide their rules. Whether you could actually get them to be motivated to go into a team with other owners mm. of different size boats, I'm not so sure. I think it's run its course, to be honest. Yeah, I think it has run its course. Uh, when I was in England last year, my son um, navigates on one of the fast 40s, and I go out and watch it on mine. And he's, watch it. It's, it's fantastic racing. And they're all only drivers. Um, and it's good to see. And they only allowed three professionals or four professionals on board. I know, very good. Mm. I don't think you'd ever see the teams racing back. I don't know. No, no. But it was a, it was a pretty cool time in, in, in but the there sport. Had, there has been a massive resurgence of quarter-ton racing mm. and one-ton racing, you know, with the old boats. Uh, a massive resurgence, isn't there? Mm. Mm. So you both went on and had already achieved a lot in your sailing careers. Where would you sort of put the 87 Admiral's Cup in your in your catalogue of, of successes? Well, for me, personally, you know, it, it, you know, I not only did we succeed in winning, but also, for me, it was the start of my yachting professionalism, you know, professional career. And um, it was a big step for me. And then I was lucky enough to come out of a bad campaign, go to the Admiral's Cup, and then go to um, Steinlager, and then I was away, and then I had my own campaigns after that. So it was a big step for me. Yeah. Well, for me as well. I mean, it it had, it had been a long haul, as I said. It started for me in eighty in eighty one. I sort of look back at my sailing career and think, hey, you know, someone of of above average ability, but no, no I wasn't that special compared with the guys today. But the stuff. I won, it, the timing was perfect. When mm. I won the OK Worlds, I come out of Christchurch. I, I really was not a, in the Auckland scene, but it, it happened for me. Admiral's Cup was a wee bit the same, and, and I benefited from that, that I could get into America's Cup, and that carried on to commentary. And, mm. and I could get into sailing professionally in, in Northern Europe, in Germany, and, and then after that, um, in, in Japan. And that would have never come about without... Um, Mm. Without winning the Admiral's Cup, mm. you know, you meet you meet people at crucial times, and you you, you know, if you if you don't win win many regattas, when you do win one, mate, you've got to milk it for all it's got, because yeah. not everyone's a Peter Burling that can win, you know, almost dial up a win, can't he? For for guys like Ross and I, it's mm. sort of uh, you got to you got to mm. treat those moments mm. and and um, see where the opportunities lie. Then well, it's been fascinating to to chat over the last. 55 minutes or so, but um, I can't let you go without uh, telling your stories of your worst wipeouts ever. So, who would like to go first? <laughs> You'll have more than me, mate. <laughs> Man, I've had some beauties. Uh, probably the one, uh, the, the most memorable one, it was like it was something in slow motion, and we were in the, um, we had deep, um, it was in the, can't remember which uh, Woodbread it was. But anyway, we're deep, uh, quite deep down south, coming into Cape Town. We took a long dip south, and it was really howling. And um, we had, uh, I had a, a fantastic crew. I had Scotty was steering, and he was, um, and uh, I was the skipper. And um, it was starting to get breezy. We had a masty kite on, and the boat wasn't that good in heavy downhill conditions. And um, 
I was saying to Scotty, I came up on deck, Scotty, Scotty, we've got to take this masthead and peel to the fractional. Scotty said, no, 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 I've got it, I've got it. And then uh, it was, um, this went on. I said, Scotty, change. You've got to change now because otherwise we were just going to really wind her out. And anyway, he said, no, I've got it. And I, I'm sure it was just after he said, I've got it. The boat just got completely overpowered and went straight down and it just got deeper and deeper in the water and the water was up to the boom and we just and it just came growing to a halt and all the guys were hanging on to the pedestals and the steering wheel and then we just went straight down. There was, boat, there was no boat in the water and then we just flopped straight on our side. God, that was a beauty, eh? What did Scotty say? Eh? Oh, I had it, I had it, I had it. <laughs> well, not much you can say, is there? I mean, if, if we had survived that puff, we would have peeled, but we didn't survive that puff. But, man, we were... It was a, it was a funny boat. It just went... just carried, carried on going So down. what boat was it, Ross? It was a uh, Volvo 60, but it was designed by um, Alan Andrews. Is it Alan Andrews? American. And it was... It was a really quick boat, but it hated this downhill conditions. <laughs> I mean, she hated it, right? It was a beauty. But it had plenty of good wipeouts. What about you, Peter? Oh, for me, uh, um, so after, when I first moved to Auckland, after we'd done the OK Worlds, I, I got asked by Graham Woodroff to, to get involved with a one-tonner called uh, Mr Jumper. And it was a centreboard one-tonner, and this was for the 1977 one ton cup here and and so it was a keelboat but it had a center board and they were quick like really quick but safety was not a big feature of these things at that time and we were doing a i can't remember if it was the trials of the one ton cup out off um out in the gulf and it was blowing hard that southwest and we were running uh, probably going out towards channel island and this thing so you'd you go downwind, you'd lift the centreboard up, and you're off. And so we're going along, and but it was really unstable. And Woody lost it, and the thing broached, and we're lying on its side. And because the centreboard's mm. up, the thing wouldn't come up again. So Woody's on the helm going, I can't steer it. I can't, I can't pull the boat off to go downwind. And then I look over the side, along with the other guys, and Ross Gwynevin is standing on the rudder. And so the reason Woody couldn't so called so it wouldn't have mattered anyway, we're on our side, was this one tonner, it's turned turkle and Ross Gwynovan had said, Bugger this, I'm yeah. out of here. And he's standing on the rudder as we you know. Yeah, it was fascinating. Great time, great boats, but uh, a little bit dodgy. Did they just have ballast in the bottom? Yeah, a little bit of ballast. But they were quick. They were quick. So. It's been for, it's for sale, eh, Mr. Jump? Is it? Great boat. Yeah, yeah. Carry boat. Tim Gurr yeah, built it. Beautiful. Yeah. So that was, uh, you know, kind of serious at the time. But then the key was to get the centreboard. You'd have to grind the centreboard down on a winch, and then the boat would get its stability, and you could you could ride it. Was the weight in the fit? In, in the fit, yeah. In it, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah so Ross Gwynnivan on the rudder of the one tunnel was quite <laughs> quite cute. <laughs> Holding on. <laughs> yeah, I've learned on the side, man, life. Well, it's been great to go down memory lane and, and celebrate and remember uh, you know, a really special time in, in New Zealand sailing history. So Peter Lester and, and Ross Fiore, I really thank you for your time. Um, I've certainly enjoyed it and I hope you have too. Mm. Thanks. Thanks very much.
Well, that's it for another episode of Broad Reach Radio. Thanks for tuning in. If you've got any suggestions or feedback, then feel free to drop me a line at michaelb at yachtingnz.org.nz. And if you like what you've been hearing, then give us a follow. I'll be back in a fortnight with another interview. Until then, take care.